Well, good morning. Again, my name is Marshall. I'm one of the pastors here. And a couple things before we pray and uh, look at the passage. Uh, th- first, I want to thank uh, everybody. Thank uh, Rick and Amanda for just reading. Thank Katie and the band. Just great music. Can't wait for the offertory during the Lord's, su- uh, Lord's uh, Supper this morning. And then thank you to Katie Harrison uh, for sharing her story, uh, as well as those uh, Hannah and Jeb before. we got one more next week. Thank you so much for uh, sharing that beautiful uh, story. A couple things uh, to be praying about. Um, First of all, uh, I'm going to ask you to consider, uh, many of you have done this, to set an alarm on your phone for 127. Make sure you do it in the afternoon and not in the morning. Uh, Somebody did it in the morning and woke themselves up. But uh, 127 p.m., like that's random. Uh, Well, one of the verses Joe, our elder, alluded to a second ago was looking to 2024. We have some exciting plans. And 127 p.m. is a reference to Psalm 127, the Old Testament book of songs or psalms. Psalm 127 is the First verse is, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. So we're looking to God, and I'm asking as many as are willing to set a little alarm. And all you got to say at 127 is, unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor and labor in vain. You can make the name of the alarm. Uh, so if you're willing to consider that, please do. But also, uh, this Tuesday, I have a group of folks that pray with me every Tuesday at 12. And uh, that's every two, you're always welcome. But this uh, uh, specific Tuesday, 12, 12 at 12, I thought that was too good to pass up. 12, 12 at 12, that's this Tuesday. Uh, We're going to gather in here for a 30-minute time of worship and Advent prayer. So we invite all of you to join us. There'll be at least 10 of us here. So please come. We'll gather around the front here and pray. Uh, if you're willing, I'm asking uh, those folks uh, who are willing to, uh, to fast that morning, to skip breakfast, and to come here uh, both physically hungry and spiritually hungry as we look to the Lord to meet us uh, during Advent and during 2024. So keep your Bible open. If you had just had it open, I hope you do as we look at this passage, but let me pray before we do. God, I got to say, uh, as you know, as I've looked at and thought about this man, Zachariah, this week, I have, uh, I've really come to like and appreciate and respect him. And so this morning, I pray that we can learn from Zechariah and his story and his song. But more than that, we can, like him, look beyond to your son, the Lord Jesus, who has come from on high to deliver us, who has visited us and redeemed us. So God, I pray that with Zechariah, we would look to Jesus and see him this morning in the teaching of your word. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. I love Christmas. I love it. I'm sure many of you do. I love the songs. I love the sounds. I love the presents. I love the parties. Uh, I have an eight-year-old, which means I have one of the great joys ahead of me in 15 days, uh, which is the the amazing fact of an eight-year-old on Christmas morning, mind-blowing, unfiltered exuberance. I mean, just such freaking joy. I can't wait to watch it. But I do have a lover's quarrel. I have a lover's quarrel with Christmas, not the Christian parts of Christmas. I will never tire of God in a manger. I will never tire of the angels singing. But I do have a beef with the commercial Christmas. This makes me a little bit like Charlie Brown, as I guess. Uh, It kind of irks me. And what irks me is not just so much the commercialism of it, but what irks me is that it, it papers over so much. It literally papers over so much the commercial Christmas. Uh, Because we sing, it's the most wonderful time of the year. But that's just not true for all of us. I got an email this week from a pastor that said this. I loved what he said. He said, this season is not only for the excited and the exuberant, 
but it's also for those who are barely hanging on. The lonely are lonelier, the grieving are more sad, the depressed, the darkness is darkener. For the marginalized, the isolation is more defined. And actually, as I thought about it, I think one of the best ways to be honest about Christmas, about what's beneath, is to pay attention to celebrate Advent. Advent. Katie alluded to this. But Advent, that word, uh, refers to the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. We light a, I love the, the symbolism of, of Katie telling her story and then going and lighting the second candle of Advent. It's the four Sundays coming up to Christmas. The word Advent means coming. And in Advent, it references really three comings of Jesus. First, during Advent, we are celebrating and preparing our hearts for Christmas, the first coming of God in the manger, Jesus' birth. But we're also in Advent longing for the return of Jesus at the end of time when Jesus will come and make all things new and put all the bad things away. Everything sad will become untrue. But also in Advent, we are longing and looking for this third coming, which is that God would show up in presence and power in our lives today. That's what Advent is. We are looking for stories of God's grace and presence in our lives and those around us. Where God is coming, where God is showing up in the midst of our real hurts and our real pains of a real Christmas season. Even as with hope we anticipate Jesus' final coming. And I think the reason, as I've thought about it, that I love Advent so much is it feels like my life. It feels like my life. Jesus has come, but my world, the, the world, my life is not fully healed. And so we tell our stories, stories of God's grace and presence. And we tell these stories to help us pay attention to others. Someone in the pew next to you is undoubtedly in a tough season. Pay attention to others, but we also tell these stories to help us pay attention to our own hearts, to slow down and to enter the minefield of our hearts. You may not have been at the Highland Park shooting, but there's something in your heart that needs tending to, paying attention to. And Advent encourages us to be honest about those things, our fears, our doubts, our longings, our joys, even our traumas. Because being honest about what's, it's not just a wonderful time of year, but being honest about what is in there is actually the pathway. It's the pathway to love and to joy. You see, Advent is ultimately about hope, the ultimate hope that Jesus sees you, sees me in our hurt, and he has come and will come to forgive and to heal, to redeem and to make whole. Now, if you've been with us, we have been in the Gospel of Luke. And for Christmas, we're in the Songs of Christmas. We're calling it a Christmas playlist. And today, last week we looked at Mary's song. Today we look at Zachariah's song. Mary's song is known from the Latin as the Magnificat. You've heard that. You may not have heard. Zachariah's song is known as the Benedictus, uh, the song of Zachariah. And Zachariah's story is so much of an Advent story. It's a story that begins in pain and longing. It includes doubt and loneliness and resolves itself in joy 
hope, praise, and singing. And so there's just two things I want us to learn from Zachariah's story. And I owe this outline indebted to my friend uh, Daniel Mason. Two things I want us to see from Zachariah and learn from him. First, that we are to lean into, lean into our longings, our pain, and our doubts. And then secondly, to sing our songs of salvation. First, to lean into our pain, our longings, our doubts. And for this, if you have your Bibles open, look back at the early part of Luke 1. It's page 855 in the Pew Bible. I'm going to tell you a little bit of Zechariah's story. Zechariah was a priest. He was married to a woman named Elizabeth. He was a holy man, as was his wife. Luke chapter 1, verse 6, again on page 855 in the Pew Bible, says this of them. And they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Which is to say that Zechariah knew God's word and he obeyed it. He followed God. He had literally given his life in service to God. I mean, when we meet him, he's literally in the temple. He's in the church house, right? But here's the deal about Zechariah and Elizabeth. I'm not going to read all these verses, but they are older and they have never been able to have children of their own. Now, that is a great grief in any generation. 2,000 years ago, it was a source also of shame and financial insecurity. There was no social security. There was no 401k or pension plan. Children were your pension plan. But even for you today, for whatever reason, you have wanted children and been unable to have children. You know this pain, the pain of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the pain of longing. For something that is good and beautiful. The pain of praying for it. Praying for it and finding that your prayers are answered with what feels like silence. You know the pain of feeling left out by your friends. The pain of unsolicited advice. The pain of feeling like people are pitying you. Or just forgetting you. Zachariah and his wife Elizabeth, they have felt that with you. And they have dealt with their pain by staying busy. Actually, they stay busy in ministry. I mean, they attend to the priestly duties, their religious duties. I mean, literally, Zechariah, when we meet him, is in the temple, okay? He's doing God's work. I mean, they are faithful people. But there's also this, and I want you to note this. In verse 13 of chapter 1, Zechariah and presumably Elizabeth alongside him, they have been praying for a child. I think this gets skimmed over. I didn't really even notice it till this week. They were praying for a child. I'm not going to get into the theology of prayer or the theology of angels. What I want to talk about is that Zechariah leaned into the ache of his heart. He obeyed and he prayed even as he hurt and longed. He prayed for a child. He obeyed by showing up at his work. So much of the Christian life is showing up, but he didn't just show up. He prayed. He's honest about his longing, his desire for a child. And one thing we learn from Zachariah and Elizabeth is to lean into our pains and longing. They had prayed for years. Most likely they had prayed for multiple decades. And they took those requests. They prayed them to God. What are the deep longings of your heart? Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a baby, a child. Maybe it's for a wayward child. Maybe your prayer is for a better marriage. 
Excavate your heart. Take your longings. Be honest. Don't just sing about the wonderful time of the year. Be honest about what is deep in there. You may not get the answer you want. Not everybody gets a baby that prays for a baby. But I can promise you this. God will show up. He will show up in the ache of your heart. That place that feels like an absence and a hole can be filled with God's presence. Now in Zechariah's case, after he has prayed for these many years, God meets him. God meets him in his longings and his prayers by giving him the very thing his heart desires. A son. Verse 13 of chapter 1, an angel comes with the best news imaginable. Your prayer is answered. Zechariah, you will have a son. And not only that, he's going to be a great man of God like you. He will go before the Lord's Messiah. He will announce salvation, ushering in, preparing God's people. This is amazing news. This is even greater than anything Zechariah could have imagined. But what does Zechariah do? Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall this be? I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. He's prayed for this. And it happens. But he believes this is too good to be true. And so to his pain and to his longing, he adds his doubts. He doubts God. He doubts that God can really be this good. You ever felt like that? I don't believe God can be this good. But here's the deal today. I want to speak in praise of doubt. I want to speak in praise of Zechariah. I want to commend him for voicing what is actually inside of him. That is how he feels, and he takes it to God. He is leaned in in prayer amidst the longings, and now he is leaning in in his doubts. And let me say this especially, most of the students have gone home by now, Northwestern students, but high school students, middle school students, never fear your doubts. Never fear your doubts. Don't worry about upsetting or overthrowing God. If God is there, if he's real, he can certainly withstand your doubts and mine. Zechariah takes his very real doubts about God's goodness and he takes them to God. How can this be? How can I know this? But in the midst of your doubts, in the midst of your doubts, have the humility and the honesty to doubt your own doubts. You know, Zechariah does not enthrone his doubts. He probes them. He asks the question. He realizes by asking the question that he might be the one who is wrong. You see, he doubts, but he also doubts his doubts. And friends, that is the path to meeting God. Have the humility, the honesty, and the courage both to voice your doubts and to doubt your doubts. Because friends, God loves to show up. He loves to show up with people who will honestly engage him with their real hurts and their real doubts. Now, in Zechariah's case, he meets, God meets Zechariah in his doubts with what C.S. Lewis would call, the great English scholar of the last century, a severe mercy. Because in verse 20, after Zechariah has doubted, the angel makes him mute. He's unable to speak for, six, for nine months until the child is born. Now, sometimes we think of that as his punishment for his doubts. I actually don't think this is punishment. I think this silence is about healing, not sanction. This is a gift, not punishment. Because for nine months, Zechariah can't talk. 
He has nine months to recall what he's been told. To remember God's word. To reconnect his heart to God's promises. He has nine months to reflect on God's word even as he walks his quote, watches his quote barren wife grow in pregnancy. You see, friends, so much of Christian growth comes by taking God's promises and laying it next to your life, especially when it doesn't make sense. And that's what Zechariah does in these nine months of silence. He starts making the connection between the promises and what he's experiencing in his life. That's exactly what our Advent stories are about. Taking the pro- that's what Katie has done. That's what Jeb and Hannah have done. They've taken the promises of God. And they've laid them next to, even when they don't fully understand, even when they still can't go to a parade. But they've taken those promises and they have laid them next to their very real lives and they're trying to make sense of them. That's what an Advent story is. Don't miss this. Zechariah is leaning in, but he's not the hero. God is the one who is meeting Zechariah at his most tender place. I mean, for an aged man in Israel 2,000 years ago to not have a son was a place of longing and fear and pain and even hope. And God meets Zechariah there at the place, the most tender place of his soul. What is that place for you? What is that most tender place in your soul where the heartache in the confusion, whatever it is, where is God asking you to lean in, to hear his word, to look for the light of his promises? Because I'm telling you, friends, wherever that point is, it's there. It is there that God wants to meet you. After nine months, Zechariah's son is born. John the Baptist. You've heard of John the Baptist. That's Zechariah's son. So let's look to the end of Luke chapter 1, page 856. The son of his old age, a gift in so many ways. In verse 63, his son is born. He names him in writing. He says his name will be John. His tongue is loosed. And he speaks, he sings a song of salvation. I mean, he's been quiet for nine months. Uh, Imagine. Actually, you know, Nick takes, I had never thought this was a good idea for me till this week, but Nick takes these silent retreats where he goes away for like three days and doesn't speak, and I'm like, that's a good idea. I need to do this. Uh, maybe, no, we can't go together. We're going on a silent retreat. I was going to invite you to come with me, but that'd be beside the point. Um, I'll wave at you. No, um, I think I'm going to do one. Anyway, but after nine months, Zechariah bursts forth in song, singing a song of salvation. He's ready to sing, and so much comes pouring at him. Just verse 68, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. This is a song of thanksgiving. It is a song of salvation. It is cosmic in its scope. It refers to redemption, mercy, covenant, holiness, David's throne. It is, it is so wonderful. I love, look with me real briefly in verse 76. He makes it personal. He has this big picture of salvation. He does all this fancy theology. And then he looks at his son. And he sings about how that big salvation applies to his son. He makes it personal. Naming the ways that his son would experience and proclaim the salvation of which he sings. I will say this, verse 77 is a great prayer to pray over and for your children. That your children would be those who give knowledge of salvation to God's people. (laughs) That's what John the Baptist does, and that's Zechariah's prayer, to give knowledge of salvation to God's people. Take that verse, pray it over your children and grandchildren. 
There's a lot we could cover. I want to look at four images. Four images of his prayer. A horn of salvation, a house of salvation, a horizon of salvation, and the heart of salvation. First, the horn of salvation. Verse 69, he says, God has raised up a horn of salvation. This is not a musical instrument. This is a reference to the horn of an animal, something strong. This is the strength of a fighting animal. Think Cape Buffalo or rhinoceros. He is singing of the strength of God. But he also sings of the house of salvation. Also in verse 69, he speaks of and sings of the house of his servant David. Now, Zechariah nor John the Baptist, for that matter, were descendants of David. They weren't. They were from a different tribe. This is a reference to the coming birth of Jesus. And the reference to the house is a reference to the people of God, the community of God. He sings not just of God's strength. He sings of God's people. But then 30 also sings of the horizon of salvation. This is one of my favorite images. The end of verse 78. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Think of the favorite sunrise you've ever seen. The image of the sun rising and just before the dawn. It is the most cold and it is the most dark. But then rosy-fingered dawn begins to dance. And eventually the sun rises. The earth stirs to life. And all that has been in darkness and cold can now walk in freedom and safety. Sing, he does, the horizon of salvation. Now I wonder what image of salvation you need this morning. Do you need to know the strength of a mighty God? Maybe you feel oppressed Uh, by something in the culture. Maybe it's the secularism you see in your kids' schools. Maybe it's something personal. You are physically sick or you are oppressed by something that you can only call depression and you need to sing of the horn of salvation that our God is strong. Or maybe you are alone and you are weary in your loneliness and you need to know that there is a house for the people of God a group of people who can share your faith and help you carry your burden. Do you need to sing of the house of salvation? Or maybe the darkness around you is deep. You're in the midst of some dark night of the soul and you need to know that horizon of salvation. That yes, it is dark and yes, it is cold. But by God, the sun is coming and it will rise to visit from on high, to give light to those who walk in darkness. Some of you sitting here today need to sing of the horizon of salvation. The sunrise is coming. You see how God has met Zechariah in his longing and his pain. And what is Zechariah's response? He sings. He actually sings. He lifts his voice and he sings. Now, at the risk of going from the profound to the profane, last night, my family, we watched Elf. Uh, it's 20 years old, so spoiler alert, Elf. I, we love, I mean, it is so great to watch an eight-year-old just belly laugh watching Will Ferrell. I mean, just, I mean, I wasn't watching the movie. I was watching my son. He was having such a good time. You're like, where's he going to illustrate it? Okay. Closing scene, closing scene of Elf, Santa Claus is trying to get his sleigh to fly in New York City. And and the way the movie is constructed, the sleigh is somehow tied to the Christmas spirit and people singing, okay? As people sing, 
the sleigh flies. If you remember the movie, like they're bouncing along through Central Park, the sleigh is. And there's this one character played by James Cain. He's a Scrooge-like character. His name in the movie is Walter Hobbs. And he's mouthing the word. And his wife nudges him. And he finally sings. And when he sings, the sleigh takes off. Now, that's a silly illustration. But it makes my point. Because there's something about singing that engages us. I'm not, this is not a metaphor. I'm talking about actually singing with volume now and even in your own home. Singing. Zacharias sings the songs of salvation. He makes noise with his mouth. I had a friend tell me years ago that you can, this is actually I think true, you can never be sad when you're singing. You may feel grief, but there will be joy. Now make sure Zechariah sings this song of salvation. I need you to know, though, Zechariah's life is not going to be easy. It's not like he's had this son, everything's going to be easy. We don't know how long he lives. But he probably intuited this, that this son over whom he is singing right now, that son, he dies a violent death. He's literally beheaded, this son of his that he's, he's so happy about. 30 years later, he'll be beheaded, this little baby, when he's a grown man. But he sings of the horn of salvation, the house of salvation, and the horizon of salvation. But ultimately, what causes him to sing is the heart of salvation. This whole song is a song of salvation, but the root, the cause, the fount of this whole song is found in verse 78. Katie will be singing this in just a moment. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God. This is the source, the root, the tender mercy of our God because of it. Now, the Hebrew equivalent for tender mercy is the word womb. Mercy is from the deep resources of God's character. This is his guts, his womb. This is intimate, who he is. Why does God save? Because of his own mercy. This is perhaps the most distorted picture of salvation, even for Christians. This is so important. All other religions and even some Christians mistakenly teach that there is something in us or something done by us. There's something within us that makes us pleasing to God, makes us want to save, makes him want to save us. Islam says it's keep the five pillars. Judaism says it's keep the law. Hinduism says it's do the right thing. Same thing with Buddhism. Secularism says to thine own self be true. Even Santa Claus is in on it with his moralism. You better watch out. You better not shout. I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. And he's going to be find out who's naughty or nice. Those are all about seeing something good and responding. But that is not Christianity. Because of the tender mercy of God. God saves you and me because of something that is within him. Something within him compels him to move towards you. Let me give you an imperfect analogy. Imagine a wife asking a husband, why do you love me? Now that husband's in a tight spot already. Why do you love me? But let me tell you, there is a right answer. Let me tell you what the wrong answer is. It's because you're beautiful. It's because you're brilliant. It's because you're funny. Now that's wrong for several reasons. You can say those things. I'll talk about that in a second. But that's not what they are looking for, first of all. But also there's this. If you say that's why I love you, something may happen. They may lose their beauty. They may lose their mind. They may lose their humor. The right answer is I love you because I love you because I love you. There is just something in me that loves you. 
Now, it's an imperfect analogy because we do love things about our spouses, and it's good to tell us those things. If your wife asks you, do I look good in this dress, it's not the time to say, it doesn't matter, I love you. <laughs> but with God, his reasons for loving you and me are 100% within him because of the tender mercy of our God. Because of the tender mercy of God. God does not look at you and say, you are worthy of my mercy or love. It's because of something that is in him. It is salvation is because of God's tender mercy. And if that's the case, his salvation means that he likes you. He is fond of you. Brennan Manning says it this way, tenderness awakens within us the security of knowing we are thoroughly and sincerely liked by someone. Your God likes you. You see, God proves this by sending his son. You see, uh, verse 68 says that he has visited us and redeemed us from on high. The shadow of the cross falls over the manger because even in the scene of Jesus' birth, we can look forward to Jesus' death. The great proof of God's heart of mercy is that he gave his son for us because of the tender mercy of of our God. And so this Advent season, let's lean into our hurts, let's sing our songs of joy, and let us remember that it is because of the tender mercy of our God. Pray with me. Our great God, we thank you for stories like we've heard in these Advent stories and the story of Zechariah. We thank you for his song, for his life, but above all that he points us beyond himself to you our tender and merciful God. Be with us, Lord Christ. Amen.